Repeat. The U.S. Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. If you are indoors, stay indoors. If you are outdoors, seek immediate shelter in a building. That was a terrifying U.S. Pacific Command alert issued on Saturday, January 13th, 2018, in Hawaii. For 38 minutes, people thought there was a bomb headed their way. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today, we're talking about the importance of things working, whether it's our missile defense system or a database system. A few weekends ago, 1.5 million Hawaiians, plus thousands of tourists, were sent into a panic when a text alert announced that a ballistic missile was headed to the islands. Thankfully, it was a false alarm and blamed on human error. This scary incident had many of us reflecting on how we'd be protected if such a threat were actually real. After all, the U.S. has spent hundreds of billions of dollars on missile defense. Shouldn't it be possible to intercept and shoot down missiles before they reach Hawaii or any other American target? My colleague, Dr. Laura Grego, is a real-life rocket scientist and senior scientist with our global security program here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's an expert on outer space security, including missile defense. She spent many years researching and writing about the capabilities of the ground-based mid-course defense system, which is supposed to be able to shoot down fast-moving missiles carrying nuclear weapons. The benefit of having a missile defense expert as a coworker is you get the truth about what our systems are capable of. The drawback of having a missile defense expert as a coworker is that you get the truth about what our systems are capable of. Laura joined the Got Science team to crush all of our delusions about our own safety and also to chat about why having a flawed system is worse than no system at all, why diplomacy is still the only answer to nuclear saber rattling, and why, if you happen to encounter a bear, it's always better not to poke it. So, Laura, thanks for joining us today on the Gut Science Podcast. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here, Colleen. Excellent. So I want to start right off the bat with North Korea, because that's what's in the news these days. They are ramping up their missile launching capabilities substantially. And this has put a lot of focus on our ground-based mid-course defense system. Can you give us just a brief lay of the land to start in terms of the different types of defense systems we have? So the United States is in a very fortunate geographical position. We have vast oceans to the east and west and friendly neighbors to the north and south. So we don't spend a lot of time thinking about short-range missile threats because we don't. We have a pretty friendly neighborhood. So when you're thinking about nuclear and ballistic missiles, you know, targeted against the United States itself, we're thinking about intercontinental ballistic missiles, meaning they have to go 10,000 kilometers at least to get here. So um, those are the highest, fastest, farthest missiles. So the ground-based mid-course missile defense, the GMD system that you mentioned, is the sole system that's meant to defend against threats like that. So that consists of 44 interceptors, 
All but four of those are in Alaska. The, the rest of them are in California at Vandenberg Air Force Base near Santa Barbara. And those are meant to knock down a missile that's headed our way. So there are other missile defense systems that you might have heard about, and those are meant to defend against shorter range missile threats, so things that don't go quite that far. And they're used, they call them theater missile defenses or regional. So we have the Aegis ship-based missile defense system. So those are based on Navy ships that move to the area of concern. We've got those in Europe and we have those in East Asia, for example. And then there's the THAAD missile defense system. That's shorter range than Aegis, mostly. Um, and that's that's an army system that gets airlifted over to wherever you're worried about. And they put it down. They put down radars and interceptors. So we that was recently deployed to South Korea in the south. And there's one in Guam. And then there are, you know, even shorter range than that, Patriot missile defense systems, which people have probably been hearing about for a long time. Those were important during the Gulf War. So those are for shorter range missiles. So there's a range of them, but they do different things. So you could think missiles that don't go as far also don't need to go as fast. So that's a easier problem to solve. By the time you get to intercontinental ballistic missiles, they're going really fast. So it's a super challenging problem. Describe to me what mid-course defense system is. Sure. Okay, so an ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, looks like a big space launch vehicle. Basically, if you ever watched a launch on TV, you see something on a launch pad, and it's these big flames and powerful engines, because they need to get this going really fast to get to go as far as it needs to go. So it has this big, powerful launch. That's called the boost phase. So that time of active launching lasts like at most around five minutes. Okay, so that gets the missile going really fast. And then the word ballistic just basically means it's in free fall. Once you get it going fast, it's not guided. It's not like an airplane that uses aerodynamics to make changes or to fly. It's simply just going with the speed it got revved up to. So that cruising part, that ballistic flight, that's the mid-course. So most of that travel to go from, for example, North Korea to the United States or somewhere far like that, most of that happens up in the vacuum of space, you know, well above the International Space Station, right? So up where the satellites are. And so that's the vacuum of space. And, and then it spends a very short time coming back through the atmosphere on the other end. So you know, sort of more like a minute or two. So most of the time it's traveling is in the mid-course. So that's mm -hmm. where our GMD is trying to knock this thing out or explode it. Right. So it lasts the longest. So that it seems like <laughs> that's the first place you start trying to defend. The tricky thing about mid-course, and this is not just tricky, this is a showstopper, is that you're traveling in the vacuum of space. And so there's no atmosphere to slow light objects down more than heavy objects. You know, like if you're standing at the top of a building and you dropped an anvil and a feather, everyone's intuition tells them which one's gonna land first because there's more air resistance per mass, right? So it doesn't work the same way. Um, and so to distinguish a light balloon that looks a lot like a warhead from the actual warhead, you can't use the atmospheric slowdown to tell you which one is which. You need other clues. You need sensors like radars and infrared sensors to try to gather your clues and figure out which is which. And that's actually a very difficult basic physics problem. And the adversary has lots of tools at his or her disposal to try to trick you. 
we call those countermeasures. So these decoys that I mentioned, like fake warheads, if you can't distinguish between the light fake warhead and the real warhead, you're going to have to target both of them. And if your light fake warhead you know, they don't cost too much to put on top of your rocket because they're light. You can put dozens of them and make it really hard for the defense to find out which is the right target. That's an issue that's been well known for decades and really has not been solved in any substantial way. So the success of a mid-course system really rides on the fact that you just hope that your adversary can't do it. You hope your adversary hasn't figured out how to make these balloons or good countermeasures or, you know, little heaters or coolers or things to change the observed temperature of your objects. You just have to hope that they haven't done a good job of that. So what do you say to the person who says, well, just shoot a dozen... Uh, interceptors? Interceptors, yes. Yeah. So just well, shoot a dozen mm -hmm. interceptors and get all of the decoys and yeah. the real one. Well, sure. <laughs> I would say that, that the GMD interceptors are like, I think they're like $70 million each, and you are always going to be on the wrong side of that cost curve. And that is something you hear over and over from the Pentagon. We are on the wrong side of the cost curve with this system. They acknowledge that that's a problem. It's clearly understood by lots of people in the Pentagon that you're not going to get out ahead of these decoys by building more interceptors. It's simply too difficult and too expensive. To make a successful system, you're either going to have to hope that your adversary is really clumsy and hasn't figured out how to do this, or that you have figured out some clever way with your sensors to, to defeat this countermeasure issue. And it's really difficult to do. The intelligence community's assessment almost 20 years ago was that any country that has the technical capability to build an intercontinental ballistic missile has a technical capability to build these kinds of countermeasures which should fool a missile system. So we keep pouring money into it. Yeah. What do we do with it? If, if we know it doesn't work and it's there, what do we do with it? Stop funding it? And what are the alternatives? So, you know, that was the bet I think the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration made is that if we just get it in the ground, it's going to be hard to rethink it. And so people will only want to just go ahead. And that was in the early 2000s. The, the approach was we have no time to do all this engineering and to do more testing, research and development. We need to get it in the ground as soon as possible because this threat is happening. And right. So and that's the point in time where the administration decided that they didn't need to go through the rigorous checks and balances right. of of a scientific process. Right. So normally, so at, over decades of building military systems, Congress and the Pentagon, they came up with a system, it sounds so boring, right? Procurement or research and development, but basically a system colloquially called fly before you buy, which is basically how do you build something so that it works like you think it should, it solves the problem you want it to, and then it does it in a cost-effective way. So it's just like basics, like this is the problem we have, here's how we're going to solve it, here's the research and development, here's the early stuff, you get out the kinks. When you think that you've solved those problems, you can try it out in realistic conditions to make sure you didn't miss anything, like it doesn't work in the rain, or boy, we haven't solved the countermeasures problem, or you know, it shakes too much and can't count on the guidance because it vibrates too much. You get all of those you know, work all of those kinks out, and then you buy it, and then you put it into the field, right? That's the sort of the way you would build something that you wanted to work well. So, but it was essentially like, we can't wait for that process. We're going to take it out of that system that basically almost every other thing in the Pentagon 
has to go through and just build this missile defense system, you know, as fast as possible. So essentially took the technology that existed, stopped the engineering cycles and just built stuff and put it into the ground as sort of fast and furious. And that's what we have with the GMD, the ground-based mid-course defense. So what we ended up having is a bunch of stuff that as you tested it, it's like, whoa, okay, boy, we missed something here. Um, you know, some, some of the tests were just basic quality control problems. And, you know, a wire had not apparently been attached well enough. But then there were other problems that were design problems that they needed to figure out. I understand how you would be confused by the fact that we've built a system, spent tens of billions of dollars, it exists, and yet essentially it's like a prototype system. It's It never went through the rigorous engineering, and that's reflected basically in its test record, which is really poor. It's also misleading the public yes. because it exists, and many, many people would assume that it works or it works well enough. Right. And you get conflicting information from now from the Trump administration about its success rate. Right. So it exists... Right? So you think it should work. We spent lots of money and we are continuing to and we're proposing to spend many more billions of dollars on it. So again, you think it should work. Not only the Trump administration, but stretching back through the Obama administration and the George W. Bush administration, government, military, administration officials saying the system protects us well right now, um, really against all evidence. There had been no tests that demonstrated that it worked, right? So you're sort of taking it on faith. And maybe, you know, maybe that was satisfying in some sense to some people at that point. But as the North Korean missile program advanced, I think more people are turning a critical eye and saying, okay, so uh, let's see how, can you back that up with real evidence? Does the system really work like that? And you you look at the test program, and one of the beautiful things we have in in this country is transparency about a lot. And it's very difficult to hide a missile defense test. They're big, loud, hard to hide type of thing, you know, big rocket launches. So you know when they happen and you know whether they worked or not. So we know a lot about the system and and how it's performed. And that, you know, that doesn't square with the claims that it protects American people right now. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us at gotsciencepodcast.org. If you want more technical details about our missile defense system, Laura's just published a white paper titled Incremental Progress But No Realistic Capability. You can find a link to that paper at ucsusa.org slash missile defense. And stick around after the interview, and Shreya Dervasala will give us another example of something that doesn't work, a vital healthcare database. Now back to our interview. So let's think about this scenario. You're having dinner with some friends. They're super smart, and 
you're saying that you don't think spending billions of dollars for a missile defense system that doesn't work is the way to go. And whenever you bring this up, the automatic response is, well, if we don't keep working on it or have something like that, you know, we're sitting ducks. Mm -hmm. So how do you answer that question? Well, I'm, like, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. And in a lot of what you'll hear, in, in a lot of the automatic reaction is something's better than nothing. Even if it's terrible, something's better than nothing. And that sounds kind of right, but I don't think it's actually right. Um, and here's why. Missile defense isn't like, it works in a vacuum, vacuum of space, but it's not in a strategic or political vacuum. So your decisions that you make in general need to be based on a clear assessment of how it works. For example, let's say you have a missile defense system that doesn't work very well, like we don't, but you think it does. You might be inclined to take more risks in your foreign policy and brinksmanship and you know you think you have a shield you go poke the bear but your shield actually isn't great right so you might not have gone to poke the bear in the first place if you knew your shield didn't work so well i mean having a shield is better than not but best of all is not to go poke a bear so you don't want a system to distort your decision making because you think it works better than it does. Or you might, you know, you might not have as much domestic pressure to find creative diplomatic solutions to a hard problem like the North Korean problem uh, because you kind of deflate that pressure because you say, well, we've got a missile defense, so we've got time, we're working on this, we don't need to do this hard work of diplomacy because we've got a missile defense. But if you have things that make you make worse decisions overall, and really like a missile defense, even if we did a great job on the GMD, even if it worked much better than it does, it still would not ever work 100%. It still would be overwhelmed. It's still in an attack of the way a real adversary would attack. I mean, maybe if maybe if North Korea were like, yeah, um, we're going to send one or two bare, simple missiles, no countermeasures, really easy, but just, just a couple. You know, maybe the system would have a fair chance of that. But when would, when would North Korea think about doing something like that? I mean, North Korea would assuredly no longer exist if it sent any nuclear-armed missiles towards the United States. Whether or not we intercepted them or not, they would have to assume that they would... Perish. Perish. It's, yes, exactly. So maybe it works in this small situation, but that's not the likely situation. If North Korea had decided, I, I just don't see how it would be likely that North Korea would take the decision to attack the United States. I think it's very unlikely. But if so, it would do it, at, you know, throw everything at us as possible to make it successful. So in that case, you know, the GMD system is not likely to catch everything. So when you're thinking about where do I put my resources, how do I spend my time, how do I spend my political capital, how do I spend my energy, the, really the problem is how do we make sure these missiles are never launched in the first place, right? That has to be your focus. So if missile defense becomes a distraction from that, that's where I see that something may not be better than nothing. You know, while I don't think North Korea is going to have an intention to launch intentionally, thoughtfully, nuclear-armed missiles towards the United States, but it's more likely that we'll stumble into a crisis because we've got a fairly impulsive head of state in the United States, and we don't have good relationship with North Korea, don't have good communications that could reliably ratchet crises down or misunderstandings. You say, is this what you're intending? This is how we see the problems. We're not doing that basic sort of work together that, that you need to do to make sure you don't accidentally get into a nuclear conflict. So that 
when we're talking about where our energy and our time is, and we talk about diplomacy, engagement, we have to do that part just to make sure that we lower the risk of accidentally doing this. And it's that the turnaround time is so short. You hardly have any time to figure out. If a real crisis happens, mm -hmm. you don't want to have to make that horrible decision in 10 or 20 minutes. Well, that is the way we've set up nuclear weapons and nuclear missiles is that they're on, they can be used very quickly and on demand, mm -hmm. you know, um, rather than, for example, taking the nuclear weapons off the missiles and only putting them on later after deliberation. Well, it felt just last week with the, um, with the alert in Hawaii that terrified people. Mm -hmm. For me, that struck a chord because I remember growing up, I was at the very tail, sort of the tail end of duck and cover mm -hmm. where, you know, a nuclear warhead is coming in. And that was a terrifying time. I remember as a kid being mm -hmm. very scared mm -hmm. about nuclear war. And I just, I can't imagine how people felt getting that text message. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you do? Where do you go? And I don't know on the alert if it said it was a nuclear weapon or could you tell from the alert if it was, or do you just assume that that's a good question, actually. I don't know the details about that. I think it was take cover. Yeah. But, you know, it's a different, you know, there are a lot of people who didn't grow up during the Cold War now. So this may be sort of shocking. Wait, what? I thought we sort of sorted this nuclear weapons stuff out like decades ago. It sounds so old-fashioned, mm -hmm. um, but it's still with us. We still have these. These are still shaping the way we live in this world in a not positive way. So I think people are, are more aware of it than they have been. Which maybe that will be a good thing. Maybe yeah. it will raise awareness. One other thing that we didn't really touch on, but we're talking about North Korea and the U.S. and our missile defense system, but this is all in the much larger context of other big countries mm -hmm. with nuclear weapons and just how complicated it is. If we make this one move to beef up our security, that might look like we're threatening <laughs> another larger country. Maybe we're threatening China now. Right. So going back to your friend at the dinner party who is like, why wouldn't we want to have this? There is yet another piece and you've landed on it, which is the potential for missile defense to increase the threats that you see against you. So, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, it, it's going to dissuade countries from building um, missiles in the first place because they're going to see this impenetrable wall and be like, I'm not going to bother. We don't really see any evidence of that. The GMD system has been, you know, on an accelerated schedule since 2001, and that coincides with the North Korean. They clearly didn't look at this and say, I, we shouldn't bother. So that's one thing it does. But the other thing is, um, even though it's demonstrated to not work very well, in the United States, we're not saying like, but here's the horizon. This is when it works like this and it can tackle this threat, that's when we're done. So countries like Russia and China who are thinking about their own nuclear posture and thinking about how do we keep a deterrence balance with the US, they look at the missile defense and say, how do we incorporate this into our decision making? And we can see that this provides an incentive for them to build more or more sophisticated types of nuclear weapons that overcome missile defenses. Maybe not this particular system, but what they, where they think the U.S. might be going. So what that does is increase the threats that we see against us, rather than trying to find a way to draw down these hugely destructive nuclear weapons. It's an incentive to increase their sophistication and their numbers. So 
so you will be paying a price for having a missile defense system. You will pay that, and also you know, in the long-term future where you're hoping that countries reduce the number of nuclear weapons, you know, that will be a factor. So you have to balance what you think you're getting out of it with the price you have to pay in, in terms of you know, the fooling yourselves into a more dangerous foreign policy or seeing more nuclear weapons uh, aimed against you, in, you know, to try to overcome your missile defenses, all sorts of things you have to balance against what you've decided to build. Well, if there was one thing that you could make people understand about weapons and missile defense, if you could mm. just put this thought mm -hmm. into the minds of people, what, what would you want? Yeah. I guess what I would say is that the way you should be thinking about missile defense is not that it solves this problem, and it doesn't even do a great job of making it less hard to solve you're still going to have to do the hard work of diplomacy to find a real solution and real security for all actors. And in fact, if you're not careful and you, you might fool yourself into thinking it does something more for you than it does, and it might actually be harmful. You know, counterintuitively, it might end up making your world more dangerous. My colleague, says it this way, missile defense often sounds better after 30 seconds than it does after three minutes. It's really appealing to think that we could build something technologically to make ourselves invulnerable. I see the appeal of that, but it, missile defense doesn't do that. It doesn't solve your problem for you. And in fact, it might be a red herring and, and pull you off the hard task, which is dealing with the root of the problem. So it doesn't save your bacon. You need to fix the problems diplomatically. Well, Laura, thanks for joining us today. I hope you have some ways to have fun and not think about <laughs> this um, this dreary subject that yeah. you uh, the that you live you every need day. The yin with the yang. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, that's it for our interview. It's time now for a short segment we call sidelining science the latest sad news from an administration that doesn't appear to care whether healthcare providers have access to good information. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. For 20 years, Republican and Democratic administrations have maintained a database of more than 450 programs and resources for treating mental health and substance abuse issues. Known as the National Registry of Evidence-Based Programs and Practices, or NREP, all of the database's programs and resources have been vetted by an independent contractor and deemed sufficiently evidence-based to be put in practice by mental health and substance abuse specialists. But I should have said, NREP was a database of more than 450 programs and resources that had been assessed by professionals, because the Trump administration halted any new work on the database in December 2017. NREP is done. So why does this matter? Well, for two decades, doctors, counselors, families, state and local governments, and others have been using NREP to find treatments for behavioral health and substance abuse issues that actually work, that are based in evidence for their success, and that have had tangible results. So why does that matter? To give you just one example, you've probably noticed that we're in the midst of an opioid crisis in this country. Healthcare providers are struggling to figure out the best ways to treat people who are suffering from addiction to opiates. NREP was one way to find treatment options that were science-based. And while the database still exists, no new information is being added to it. 
So if a treatment program springs up that sees promising results, the vetting for that program is no longer guaranteed to be impartial. It won't end up listed on NREP. Doctors and other healthcare professionals won't be able to learn about these programs in a streamlined way. That could lead to opioid users missing out on opportunities to overcome addiction with proven, tested treatments. Now take this thought experiment and expand it beyond opioid use to suicide prevention, teenage drinking, trauma recovery, bipolar disorder, counseling for transgender youths, grief counseling, PTSD treatment, or recovery from alcoholism. Many states mandate that their agencies use only NREP-vetted programs to help people. The administration has not yet made it clear how it intends to keep providers informed about the latest evidence-based programs. They might claim that shutting down NREP is for, quote, the convenience of the government, end quote. But we call it sidelining science. Thanks, Shreya. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. It can be lonely here behind the mic at the studio. So send us some thoughts, comments, ideas for interviews. You can email us at podcast at ucsusa.org. Special thanks to physicist and UCS senior scientist, Dr. Laura Grego. Sidelining Science was brought to you by Shreya Dervasula. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.